The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Sunnyvale, California. If you have a Bible, you can go to Genesis chapter 3. If you have an outline, the title of the sermon today is God Cursed All Creation, Part 3. God Cursed All Creation. I know that doesn't sound like happy good news. I'm just dealing with what the text says. Got to do that. So those of you who haven't been with us, just so you know, we are going through the first three chapters of Genesis, just literally verse by verse. And so we've been doing that. We are now in Genesis chapter 3. Today we're going to look at verses 16 through 19. We're actually going to get through all four verses, I promise. Then next week we'll be looking at verses 20 to 24, which would be the end of chapter 3. And My promise was that we'd go through the first three chapters of Genesis because that's how the Bible begins and it lays the foundation for the rest of the Bible absolutely foundational So we're going to go ahead and look at that uh, As I said in the outline there it says God cursed all creation part three because we have we were looking at a section that goes together uh, The curse of God which actually started in verse 14 Or actually kind of verse 13 to verse 19 where after the first sin where Adam and Eve rebelled and disobeyed willingly they knew they weren't supposed to do it they committed the first sin they tried to run from god god is a holy god must punish sin and so he does punish sin and that's the context so we're looking at god punishing the act of disobedience in verses 14 through 19 and so we've already looked at two sermons on that and god kind of goes in order of the four parties that were involved in the first sin the, the there was a snake the animal was literally involved in the first sin so god literally punished the animal the snake part of his curse was that he would no longer uh, ambulate or get around upright but he would be cursed to go around and slither on his belly so that's why snakes slither today apparently they used to be upright uh, the second part of the curse was on satan who was actually inside of that snake the new testament very clearly in jesus tell us that satan himself manipulated spoke through or was inside of that snake so god cursed satan and we talked about that last uh, two weeks ago. And part of also last week in the midst of this cursing, because God still got to curse the woman, Eve, and he still has to curse Adam, the man. That's today. So we're going to look at the curses on Eve and Adam now that he's cursed the snake and Satan. And in the midst of those two curses on the serpent and Satan and then the curses on Adam, and Eve, it's all bad news, cursing, bad judgment punishment in the middle of that there's hope there's the grace of god the mercy of god and that's in verse 15 and we looked at that last week i will put hatred or enmity between you satan and the woman eve and between your descendants satan and eve's descendants and one of the descendants will be a man he shall be called he and this descendant when he comes this man whoever he is who will be born from the loins of he he is going to crush your head satan Somebody's going to come from the loins of Eve in history and crush Satan's head. Literally, the works of the devil. We go to the New Testament and we see that was Jesus Christ. He came to crush, destroy the works of the devil. That's Hebrews chapter 2 explicitly. This is amazing. This was a prophecy about the coming Messiah at least 4,000 years before Jesus came. He shall bruise you on the head. And Satan, he will crush your head, he will destroy you. But before the Messiah crushes and destroys you, you'll get a strike in because you're the serpent. You will get to hurt the Messiah, but not fatally. 
And that's exactly what happened. Satan had Jesus murdered on a cross, crucified. But then again, he rose again from the dead. It wasn't a fatal wound in terms of its permanence. And so last Sunday, just so you know, even though we were in Genesis 3.15 is what the headline was, the whole sermon for 55 plus minutes was about Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. What does that mean? The entire sermon was nothing but good news. Because it's how Jesus is going to come. That was God's plan from all along in the midst of the sin, rebellion, judgment, bad news. God had a plan. He wasn't surprised. He's going to rescue sinners. He's going to save the earth. He's going to overturn the curse. He has a plan. He is the sovereign God. He's totally in control. Everything's going to work in accordance to his glorious, awesome plan for his glory, for the good of those who believe in him. And that is Jesus Christ. So in the midst of all this cursing going on, there is that Blessed promise of hope, and that's in verse 15, where it's the first prophecy of Jesus in the Bible. It's the first messianic prophecy. It's the little gospel in seed form that is explicated throughout the rest of the Bible and throughout the rest of history. And so I think we had like 12 points last week of things that were true about Jesus, the seed, the Messiah, the Savior of the world. So we really exhausted verse 15. So now we'll look at verses 16 through 19. So go ahead to your hand out here, and we'll look at how God cursed all of creation, including the woman and the man, because of their part in the sin. If you sin, one of the lessons here that's practical, if you sin, you won't get away with your sin. If I sin, I can't get away with my sin. God knows. God will find you out. Sometimes there are immediate consequences. Sometimes the consequences for our sin are delayed. Sometimes they're delayed in this life. Sometimes the consequences of our sin are delayed until the afterlife. But the truth is, we can't get away with our sin. Be sure your sin will find you out, says the Old Testament. And then Galatians in the New Testament says, you will reap what you sow. That's true for all of us. It's a spiritual principle that's inviolable. So let's go ahead and look at this. What was the curse on the first woman? Uh, Just some presuppositions by way of reminder, or maybe for the first time for some of you, as we're reading verses 16 to 19, here's what we have already tried to establish over the course of three plus months as we've been teaching on Genesis. The presuppositions as we look at this. Number one, this is literal true history we're talking about. This is not allegory. This is not mythology. We are considering this face value literal history. Number two, 16 through 19. This is very important in terms of the interpretation. 16 through 19 is a curse. There is no good news. There is some good news in verse 15. There's no good news in 16 through 19. If you come away thinking there's good news somewhere there, then we're not understanding it properly. It's a curse. Judgment. It's all bad. It's punishment. Number three, God is the one who cursed Adam and Eve and the earth. God did it. Why is there a curse? Because God is the one who did the curse. Uh, Another thing to keep in mind, the curse goes beyond the individuals that are addressed, and it goes on and extends to their progeny or their descendants. So God cursed Adam, he cursed Eve, he cursed the earth, but that curse continues unto this day, literally January, what are we, January 10th, 2019, whatever the date is today. The curse has never ceased since the day that God issued it. We are living under the same curse conditions that Adam and Eve did from this day forward. That's why I could have... Today's title of the sermon, instead of God cursed all creation, here's some alternative titles I was thinking of coming up with because they're pertinent to what we're going to see in these verses. 
the title of the sermon today could have been what's wrong with marriage or why is there divorce these questions are going to be answered or why do we argue all the time couples married couples or speaking of married couples one of the titles could have been what's wrong with him and then a complimentary title. Well, what's wrong with her? That could have been the title of the sermon today. Speaking of marriage. Then in Adam's curse, going beyond Eve's curse, title. Why do I hate my job? Or why is my job so hard? Why is school so painful? That's answered right here in this passage. Or why can't I keep the weight off? answered in this passage it's part of the curse and finally another title could have been ouch everything hurts <laughs> we're going to see it all right here so the curse remains today another thing we are a presupposition is there was no curse like this before sin so in genesis chapter one genesis chapter two when god created all things there was no curse there was no sin there was no death there weren't any bad things adam and eve got along perfectly in their marriage all the time and their surroundings and their environment everything was just pristine and then finally good news number seven as we were reading this remember that this curse is temporary even though it's still going on today because god is going to remove this curse from the earth in the future that's what we look forward to that's our hope as christians if you know jesus christ especially that's what the book of revelation is all about it promises and also isaiah says god will remove the curse that's our great hope and all of those truths should inform your worldview your christian worldview from the bible because that's very different thinking out in the world and ideologies about how to interpret life and reality and why there are bad things going on so let's go ahead and look at uh, the curse on eve and the curse on Adam, we'll just go in order. Starting with the curse on Eve, I put there in your handout, I could have put more, um, the curse on the woman, number three, pain and conflict. Those are the two main truths, pain and conflict. It's kind of sad. You know, when God created Eve, he blessed her. It says he created man and woman and he blessed them. He wanted to bless them and he did bless them. And they were sinless and it was perfect. And part of the blessing was, it says God blessed them and he said to them, be fruitful and multiply. So having, getting pregnant, having children was intended by God to be a blessing from the very beginning. Fill the earth, multiply, have children, have babies, have families. And it was to be blessed. And it was painless. And it was perfect. And now something drastically, devastatingly wrong happens. And things are now changed forevermore. And part of this curse, the impact of it on a practical level, if you think about it, if you ask a Christian mother, typically, what are the two most important and dearest things to you here on planet Earth? Well, my marriage and my children. Well, guess what God attacked through the curse? Her marriage and her children. Those are some profound implications, and we're going to, See those. So here's the twofold curse on the woman. To the woman, to Eve, because she sinned and after she sinned, God said, I, notice God is the one taking initiative, I will greatly, this is a curse, I will greatly multiply your pain. 
That's the first phrase. I will greatly multiply. In my, your English Bible, greatly multiply, it's the same Hebrew word used twice. A little bit different form, but it's the same word, just two in a row. Greatly multiply. That's a Hebrew way to communicate uh, intensification. It's superlative. And the Hebrew writers did that. You could translate it in the Living McManus translation is, uh, God said to the woman, I'm really, 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 really going to multiply your pain. You are going to have pain in life. You're going to have your existence is going to be painful. He uses the word pain twice. I'm going to greatly multiply your pain in, in, in here's the pain in childbirth, literally in conception, not childbirth in conception. Or pregnancy at the beginning. In pain, in conception, in pain, you will bring forth children. So he uses the word pain two times to describe what her pain and sorrow and literally the Hebrew could be translated as misery. I'm going to bring misery into your life, woman, for your sin. And it has to do with bringing children into this world. And it begins at conception because that's the Hebrew word. And it goes all the way and finds its fruition in where it says, in pain you will bring forth children. That's the birth process. So everything that was intended originally by God to be nothing but an absolute blessing to the woman of conceiving and giving life to another human being in a perfect world has now been cursed. And the whole experience will be one miserable painful one and the word used for pain there that's used twice it does refer to physical pain in the old testament but it also refers to emotional and psychological pain as well at times in the old testament it is a holistic pain so that is the curse part one on the woman and so there has been pain in childbirth ever since this curse and it's true today and well why is that well God, at least one thing is every time a woman goes into and is having anguish from the time of conception to the time of pregnancy, it's the word conception is very important because that whole nine month period can be miserable and painful. And it is for different women. Some are just having a miserable time when they get pregnant. They're getting sick. They're throwing up. They're vomiting. They struggle with the pregnancy. The life of the infant is very vulnerable and it many times loses his life. That's part of this curse all the way up until giving birth and the whole process. They call it labor for a reason. It's apparently the most painful, toilsome, difficult, physical pain that humanity can experience is the birth process, giving labor, naturally. Part of the curse. And part of all of this whole process is the life of the infant becomes vulnerable and also the life of the mother, the wife herself. We see that even in Genesis chapter 35, Jacob, who became Israel, when his wife became uh, pregnant again, Rachel, in Genesis 35, you can read the story, and she was uh, to full term, and she was traveling with the family, and she began to go, and it says severe and intense labor, and she gave birth to a son, and she died in the process and gave birth to Benjamin. And as she, as she was giving birth, she knew that she was dying, and so she named him pretty much death. Son of my sorrow. And then Israel said, no, that's not going to be his name. So uh, the, the father changed the name. Son of many days. 
but both related to very similar to Benjamin. So we see this fulfilled even in Scripture. We see this fulfilled today. And it's a practical reminder that we are cursed. We are frail. We are sinful. We are children of Eve. We need a Savior. We need to be rescued. Death is a result of sin. So that's the first part of the curse. I remember the first time. We had we have four children there growing up from uh, senior in high school to college, post-college, with four kids. So we went through this process, the natural process of having birth. And I remember we went to the the birthing class. You know how you, when you've never been a parent, you have to go to those birthing classes? So we went to the birthing classes at, at the hospital. And so we did that. But then uh, the doctor who was the expert at the hospital of giving, delivering babies, he had been in it for 20 years. He said he, he had delivered over like 30,000 babies in his career. And he's speaking to an audience of us, preparing us. We'd never had children before, and he's preparing us for that day of delivery and the labor process. And he's got a whiteboard, and he's writing stuff on the board. And and then he got to the point where, and ladies, just, you know, I want to warn you, you know this already, but this is, uh, when you have a natural birth, it's the most painful thing you'll ever go through in your life. And I've been doing this for over 20, 25 years, and I've delivered 30,000 babies, and even after all the research and everything, I just don't understand. I don't know why there's pain at childbirth. And I was in the very back row. I, w- I wanted to raise my hand, speak up. And I, I think maybe my wife was holding my hand down because that would be embarrassing. And he said, but two things we know from evolution. It's probably a defect of evolution. And the defect was the pro. Here's the defect. Here's the problem. Uh, the kid's head is about the size of a cantaloupe and has to come out the size of a golf ball. So do the math. That's the problem. That's why there's pain. Anyway, and all the while I'm thinking, no, it's right here. I know. I know the answer. This is a curse from God. True story. Well, what's the second part of the curse? Not only that, or is your relationship regarding your children that you love going to be? Oh, by the way, regarding this uh, curse of pain, some Hebrew commentators, and I think legitimately so, talk about how the pain goes beyond just the birth process and that in this the woman was cursed with great pain and that she would become vulnerable in a new way to pain and being uh, subject to uh, being a weak vessel. And Peter comments on that in 1 Peter 3. So a couple of Hebrew scholars mentioned that, that uh, the whole nature maybe even in the demeanor and actually really the nature and the constitution of a woman may have been changed here. And I'll give you a couple of comments on that to explain it. But here's the second one. I just want you to see it in verse 16. Uh, the second curse will be regarding your husband now. Your desire will be for your husband. Now, the word for desire in Hebrew, mashal. Uh, desire. Your, sorry, not mashal. It's a different word. Uh, teshuka, desire. Verse 16. Your desire will be for... From now on, you're going to have a desire for your husband. And... But it's not a good desire. This word is a bad word. This is the exact same word. Look at, just flip over Genesis chapter 4, verse 7. The exact same Hebrew word, desire, is used. I think it's only used in the the Old Testament three times. And here Moses uses it in proximity. Desire, also with the same Hebrew word, master or rule, in both verses. Look at how desire is used by Moses in Genesis 4, 7, when he's talking to Cain, Cain, the guy who murdered Abel, his brother. Verse 6, 
Genesis 4, the Lord God said to Cain, why are you angry? Why do you hate your brother so much? Why do you want to kill him? Why is your countenance fallen? If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, if you succumb to your sin, your hatred, your jealousy, your anger, something horrific is going to happen. If you do not uh, do well, sin is crouching at the door. So he pictures metaphorically, sin is like a lion ready to devour. Sin is crouching at the door, ready to pounce. And what is sin ready to pounce on? He's ready to pounce on Cain. Sin is crouching at the door and its desire is for you. Sin's desire is like a ravenous, raging, vicious lion who wants to pounce on you and destroy you. That's how he defines the word desire for us. It is not a good desire. There are good desires. There's bad desires. If I desire... uh my spouse in a legitimate way that's a blessing from god that is not how it's being used here this you could literally translate this as lust so go back and look at the curse your lust will be for your husband your desire will be for your you're going to want to own possess and really control your husband from this day forth that's part of the curse and this is not a good thing in other words you're going to want to usurp illegitimately the authority of your husband who has been ordained by God to be the leader in your relationship. That's going to be the inclination and the natural desire of a wife in her sin, especially apart from Christ. That's what he's saying. And the irony is that ain't going to happen on a regular basis, or there's going to be a counter to that in the curse. God says your illegitimate, lustful Desire of usurping the authority of the headship of your husband will be continual, but he will rule over you. That's the Hebrew word mashal for rule. That word is also used in Genesis 4, 7, master, rule, and all throughout the Old Testament. And it, it has a different meaning in different contexts, but it can mean dominate, to lord over, to enslave. Many of the contexts are harsh. Some are not. Depends on the context. But this is the curse. This is what God is warning Eve. You know what, Eve, from now on, you had a perfect marriage. But from now on, you and Adam, you're going to have problems getting along. You, in Genesis 2, you were created one flesh. You were united. You were had harmony. Not anymore. You have a curse on the very relationship of your marriage. You're going to want to continually try to usurp Adam's authority and his headship. And you want to do that illegitimately. He's going to respond. He's going to react. And the rest of the part of the curse is he's going to rule over you. He's going to dominate you. Sometimes it's going to be harsh treatment. In other words, you could summarize this by saying this is why couples fight. This is why married people argue. It is. It really is. It's right here. I couldn't improve on three of the greatest Hebrew scholars that are Christians and their comments on the reality of this. So just let me read those real quick. I already said that uh, the better or a good legitimate translation instead of pain is misery that was promised to the woman. Um, so here's one of the Hebrew scholars, uh, Kylan Dalich, who said, God gives woman a sentence of punishment. It's like a, 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 a sentence. Henceforth, she was to bear children in sorrow as punishment with pains which threatened her own life as well as that of the child. The punishment consisted in an enfeebling of nature, a weakening of her constitution and nature, which disturbed the normal relation between her body and her soul. Here's another one. 
and he will rule over you. Mashal, Hebrew word, he will dominate you. Desire, the word for desire here is teshuka, a desire to possess, to control. She shall desire to control the man and to dispute the headship of the husband. Now the wife will have a tendency to rebel, quote, end quote. That's Arnold Fruchtenbaum, great Christian scholar. He's married, by the way, so I wonder what his wife thought of that. Again, Kyle and or Al, uh, Alan Ross, great Hebrew scholar, said, quote, Desire, teshuka, meaning prompting towards evil, an inclination towards evil, rule, means dominion, mastery, lordship, sometimes harsh, natural tendency toward male domination, and the woman being the nemesis to the male. Exemplified through despotic rule, crushing the woman into a slave. So all the commentators said this has an individual impact on the woman and her marriage with the man, but also there's a societal and greater corporate impact that this has of men towards women throughout history. And we see that. We see it in false religions uh, from Hinduism to others where they dominate the woman, don't even consider the woman of equal value. She can't vote. She doesn't have rights. That's true in many countries today. And that's how they view women. That's illegitimate. Why is that? It comes right here. God said so. It's part of the curse. It's only in the New Testament with the coming of Jesus Christ, the liberator of sinners, where man and woman are put back on an equal par where God made them in the first place. In Genesis chapter 1, where they were both equally made in the image of God, where they both have equal value, equal dignity. And it's only in the context of knowing Jesus Christ that two married people can actually have a harmonious marriage relationship that reaches the fulfillment that God has desired. If you're not a Christian, if you don't know Christ, you can't achieve that to the degree that God makes it possible. And one of the things or reasons is, is because if you're a Christian, when you become born again, God gives you the spirit of God to live in you. And that is your resident power to battle against your own sinful desires and inclinations that interfere in your marriage. And if you don't have the spirit of God, you don't have God's supernatural power to counterbalance the curse. And even if you are a Christian or a Christian married couple, it is still a battle because Christians who are married still get divorced. This is reality. This is where we live. This is foundational. It's all right here. God is clear. Good news is Christians can live successfully within the marriage. And, and the main way they do that, you know what, if you're married and you're, the main way you have a successful marriage today, is called forgiveness. <laughs> really? It's called humility and forgiveness. It's the only way. And that's Jesus's way. He died on the cross for sins to make forgiveness possible with each other. Okay, let's look at the curse on Adam. Uh, and I put threefold there. God's curse on Adam was a hostile environment, harsh existence, human death. Why, uh, why are there uh, earthquakes today and smog in the air and tsunamis and all that? Global warming! Ah, wrong answer. It's because God cursed the environment in the very beginning it's clear from this passage so let's look at it threefold curse on adam to the man god said because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which i commanded you not to saying you shall not eat from it you are cursed and he uses the word curse literally cursed is the ground because of you adam cursed that means the entire earth this he repeats this in genesis chapter 5 at the end of the chapter the entire earth has been cursed and that means everything in the earth that's the environment that's the dirt itself. That's why. Why do we have weeds right here? The earth is cursed. 
Why was there an earthquake in Alaska yesterday? Did you know there was an earthquake in Alaska yesterday? And in Nevada and in Indonesia and all these other places? Half the time, there's an earthquake every day. There's an earthquake somewhere in the world every five. Why are there earthquakes? Because God cursed the earth. Why are there tsunamis? Because God cursed the earth. God cursed the environment. We saw that in Romans chapter 9 a little earlier. Read that passage on your own. It's clear in the New Testament that this pain, toil, this world toils, this world is in pain. The environment in which we live is suffering. It is three times. Paul uses the word groaning, groaning, groaning. This world is groaning. Creation is groaning. The animals are groaning. The plants are groaning. Humanity is groaning. Believers and unbelievers alike are groaning. I should make a bumper sticker. Life is hard. Oh, somebody already did. That's true. comes right out of Romans 8. Why is life hard? Because God cursed the earth. Starts right here. God cursed the ground, cursed it to the ground because of you. The ground prior to this was giving Adam everything he needed. Plants were already growing. Trees were producing fruit that he didn't need to tend to or plant or do weeding. It was just God was graciously providing for all of his needs. Now that's different. You know what, Adam? You're not going to be able to just get everything you want all the time off of all these wonderful, beautiful fruit trees anymore. You're going to have to work for your food. And I made you Lord of the earth. Adam, I made you vice regent of planet earth. That ain't true no more. It's my desire that you would be that. But now the earth and the world will be your enemy. And you have to fight against it. You have to fight against everything. You have to fight against the weather. You have to fight against the land. You have to fight against the locusts. Did you see that? The locust plague that hit Saudi Arabia or Mecca this week. So that's the curse here. Why do we have bad weather? Why do we have a snowstorm in New York or Chicago that kills people with so much snow and freezing every year? Because it's the curse. This has been around for thousands of years and it will continue on. We're not going to humans and their science and their ingenuity aren't going to reverse this process. We're not going to make the environment better. We can't control the weather. God is the weatherman. And he cursed the earth in which we live. Why? To remind us of our sin, of the first man, of our need of a savior. Same thing. We need to run to a savior that we need to. This this world is not our home. This this life is temporary. It is a vapor. It is cursed. We need to be future oriented. That's where God's ideal plan is. The new heavens, the new earth, the removal of the curse. The Lord Jesus Christ, when he comes and makes all things right. That is the hope of the Christian in the Bible. This is so practical. These are the kind of questions that little kids ask. And philosophers with PhDs ask, why are there weeds? Why are there insects? Here's the answer. It's right in the Bible. Cursed is the ground or the earth because of you. Not only that is the environment cursed. Your existence is going to be toilsome and difficult and hard. In toil will you eat. It's not going to be easy street anymore. In toil. In pain. With sweat. All the days of your life. So it's not going to get better throughout the course of your life. So you're going to have to literally fight for your existence. Now, he's speaking to the man because God made Adam the leader of the relationship. And as the leader, he is also the main worker and provider and breadwinner of the relationship in the marriage relationship in the family that God ordained that in the beginning. He hasn't revoked that since. An able-bodied man who is married is expected by God to toil, to work hard by the sweat of his brow, really to do whatever he needs to do to provide for his family. And you know, it's not going to be easy. It's going to be painful. This week I was thinking of all the jobs that God has blessed me with in my life and how most of them, I hated them. 
scrubbing toilets, uh, all summer long doing uh, mowing weeds with a weed whacker in 110 degree weather, totally wrapped up in clothing to protect me and running across wasp hives and rattlesnakes on occasion, live ones. And the pay was cheap. But anyways, the job, toilsome. In toil, you eat all the days of your life, both thorns and thistles. It shall grow for you. So here's a new thing. When God created plants, he only created good plants. God didn't create weeds. Here's where weeds came from. They came after the curse. They, they were not there in week one. Thorns and thistles from now on, uh, you're going to have weeds. It's amazing how you just hoe up in a, a plot of dirt, and it looks beautiful. And just leave it Don't water it or anything. And beautiful marigolds don't just start growing by themselves. Or radishes don't just pop up. Don't even touch that thing. Don't give it water. And all of a sudden, you've got weeds growing galore. It's amazing how that happens. It's right here. It's a curse. Thorns and thistles. And you will eat uh, the plants of the field. So no longer these uh, trees that I provided for you. You're going to basically have to work to get your own food from wheat, bread, those things that have to be planted, replanted, protected. This is all new. Verse 19, reiterating how painful it's going to be by the sweat of your face. By the sweat of your face, you will eat bread. The most basic things in life to survive are going to be difficult. It's going to cost you your blood, your sweat, your tears. It wasn't like this before the curse. And so, you know, when we have a job, when we're in school, whatever we're doing, whatever's worth doing in life is going to be hard. It's going to be painful. Like I said, I don't like my job. It's too hard. I don't like my boss. I don't like my colleagues. I want a new job. I want to go where the grass is greener over there. That's usually not realistic. We've all been there or are there. So we've got to have a realistic view of the world. So what of your brow? You will eat the bread and, until you return to the ground. So there's the, the decree of death. You know what, Adam? You're going to die. God said in the day that you eat, you shall surely die. So when Adam ate that day, basically God began to kill him. God put the seed of death literally in his nature. His cells began to die and deteriorate. And then it culminated with death. He was also experienced spiritual death. We'll see as he separated from the presence of God out of the Garden of Eden. That is also death. So he did die that day. Why? Because why is he going to die and corrupt and go down to the earth? Because he was taken from the earth. For you are dust and the dust you shall return. And so when God made Adam the first man, he took dust. And he breathed into it and made Adam the first human being. That's where we all came from. So the composition of our body, every single one of us, when we die over time, we are going to decay and literally turn into dirt. The exact same elements that are in our body, this is scientific, are in the dirt of the ground. It's amazing. So that's very scientific. So that's bad news. But let's go and let's close with good news so we can get our appetite back for lunch. Uh, Romans chapter 8. Just Paul's supernatural commentary. On the curse. Remember, the earth is messed up because there's a curse. Well, who cursed the earth? God cursed the earth. Why did he curse it? As a result of sin. And for an ongoing perpetual reminder for all of us that we are sinners. We live among sinners. We need a savior. His name is Jesus. He's the only one that can rescue us from this curse. And the fulfillment of the rescue is in the future, in heaven, at the resurrection. Starting at chapter 8, verse 18, here's Paul talking about the curse. As a Christian, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time, the cursed earth, are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is be, to be revealed to us as Christians in the future in heaven. Verse 19, for the anxious longing of the creation 
waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. Even all creation is longing for something better to be alleviated from this curse. Curse, Verse 20, for the creation was subjected to futility by God, not willingly, but because of him, that is God, who subjected creation to futility. But he did it in hope. It's not the end of the story. There's good news in the future. Verse 21, in order that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. God's going to remove the curse. For we know, Christians do, that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. This whole world is groaning. That's why the the worldview that's so wrong yet prominent in the world of this idea that, oh, we can experience a utopia right now on planet Earth if we all just hold hands and are nice to each other. No, we can't. We're not going to reverse God's curse until Jesus comes. Verse 23, and not only this, but also we ourselves having the first fruits of the Holy Spirit. If you're a Christian, even we ourselves groan. We still groan, even though we're saved, have forgiveness of sin, have the Spirit of God living in us now. We still groan. We aren't there yet. God isn't finished with us yet, right? This life is hard. It's painful. We groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons. What is the adoption? The final adoption is the redemption of our body, resurrection. That's what we're waiting for. Man, I can't wait for resurrection. Not only will my body be perfect, my insides, which are actually more messed up than my body, will be perfect. And same with you if you're a Christian. For in hope we have been saved by Jesus, but hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes for what he already sees. But if we hope for what... Anyway, and then he goes into the gospel. What is the answer to all this? That we might have hope for the future. It is knowing Jesus Christ personally. Those of you who know Jesus Christ personally today, because you are Christians, you're born again, you understand all this. And you know that this is not your life. You're just a sojourner passing through, trying to be obedient to the will of God. And our home really, our permanent home is in the future. It's in heaven. It's in resurrection glory. That's our hope. That's the Christian life. Maybe there's some people here, you don't know Jesus. And hopefully this was a good reminder or maybe for the first time realization of what this life and world is really about. God cursed it. So you're not just imagining things if you think life is hard and painful. God made it that way, and he's trying to tell you something. You need to be rescued from this cursed life. And the only way to do that is through the Lord Jesus Christ. With that, let's go ahead and pray and give the Father thanks and glory. Father, we do thank you for this day. Austin. We do thank you for this day, and we thank you for the truth of the Word of God. And hard truths... But, God, thanks for your honesty because it helps us understand the world in which we live, which is a difficult world. And we can only live it with joy in the midst of pain and suffering from the external joy you give through the Holy Spirit that comes through knowing Jesus Christ through the gospel. And we thank you for that blessed gift. We give you all the glory in Christ's name. Amen. I want to take five minutes now. Five minutes. Sorry, I don't have enough time. More than that, but just if anybody had any questions, a little Q&A, we've done that before, just five minutes to give you some feedback. Um, and the rules are the question has to be related to the sermon today or any sermon in Genesis chapter 3, because I know people have had questions, and then sometimes you forget your question later or whatever, but I just wanted to give you an opportunity, just a couple of minutes, and no doubt people will benefit from your question, because if you're thinking of a question, that means somebody else probably has that question. So we have a microphone. Thank you, Austin. Um, so the rules are... It can be any, really anything from Genesis chapter 1 to 3 that I've preached on. 
Um, and then I will repeat the question if we can't hear you, and then I'll hope to give you a short answer. And my, one of my answers might be, I'm not sure about that, or I don't know. So let's just at least see, give you an opportunity if you had any questions. Take it away. Anybody got any questions on today's sermon or the last three chapters of... Oh, there's a question. Good. And then, yeah, take it away. Hi. When Adam and Eve were created perfect, were they created eternally that way, or would they have died um, at some point you know, had they not sinned? Um, you know, I, I guess I think of a flower. You could have a perfect flower, but it, it's not eternal. Did they have the... Okay. The, um, I'll, I'll, I'll repeat the question to make sure I, I got the essence of your question. Adam and Eve were created perfect, and could they have remained that way in the state in which they were created had they not sinned? Is that what you asked for the most part? Okay. Old and yeah. Passed away. Yeah. So, First Corinthians 15, Paul talks about this and says that Adam and Eve were not created in their final ideal form in Genesis chapter one and two. They were created sinless, flawless, but they weren't created um, invulnerable. They also weren't created uh, immortal in the way that we see in First Corinthians 15. In other words, even though Adam and Eve were created without sin, they were still vulnerable. To sin and temptation. Now, when Adam and Eve die, if they believe, if they got saved, when Adam and Eve die in the future, at some point, Adam and Eve are going to get a resurrection body. And that's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, that Adam and Eve's perfect state, ideal state according to God, is not in the Garden of Eden. There's a higher level, a greater state, a more eternal, perfect state, and that's the eternal heaven in resurrection glory. Because when all Christians here when we die and go to heaven, at some point we're going to get a resurrection body and we will be in heaven in a resurrection body, perfect, and our, our will, our volition will totally be intact. We'll be able to make decisions. We will be able to choose. And we will never choose sin or temptation in eternal heaven. That's very different than Adam and Eve. And so Paul talks about that and he says that Adam was sown in a weak body. He will be raised in a glorious body and he says about he gives about five different comparisons like that so adam and eve in their glory and resurrection will be very different than they were in chapter one and two and that's true of all of us but a good question robert back yonder somebody's got another hi cliff um i was wondering are there any scriptural indications of uh, when adam and eve are justified are there indications that they were justified yeah i mean i think the yeah the closest yeah yeah were they saved were they forgiven of sin um, indication. The first indication is Genesis 3.15. Well, first of all, Genesis 1, God made them in his image. I mean, he had a personal, intimate, loving relationship with them. He used to walk with them in the garden. So he developed great intimacy with them and loved them. That's the first thing we know from Scripture and God's character. Then Genesis 3.15, in the midst of a curse, God gives uh, Eve hope. Eve, even though you blew it and your hubby blew it, the Savior is coming from your loins. So that's a, a message of hope, the gospel that was given to Adam and Eve. Uh, and then God initiated the act of atonement after they sinned by covering them with animal skin, which meant probably God shed blood, killed somebody on their behalf. So in the context of Genesis, those are allusions to very possible that God saved them. In other words, I, I would expect to see Adam and Eve in heaven, but explicitly nowhere does it say and adam and eve repented and confessed jesus as lord 
So we'll see. Good question, though. Okay, two more. Um, no, I, I, um, I wanted to. I wanted to ask. Um, you, you, you know, you, you talk about how how Genesis one through three is the foundation of, you know, the entire you know world as as we know it. And you know, when I was looking, you know, before even before and after the fall, there was there was no mention of like, uh, for lack of a better word, there was no mention of like governments. Like even after the fall, it was just Adam and Eve as they were, you know, and you know still having something of a relationship with God and the promise, you know, of, of Christ coming. So I was, this may or may not be related, but, you know, is, is what we know as, as government, you know, a, a different, like an artificial, like form. I yeah. Guess, good of, question. Like, like something um, that we need. I don't, maybe you didn't hear my sermon, uh, like 10 years ago that I did in this series <laughs> on Genesis chapter one. 20, Genesis one twenty seven. we talked about that. Genesis one twenty seven and 28 were the purpose of life. God created Adam and Eve in his image for the purpose of being his vice regents. And he uses two words for rule that are used in the Old Testament that speak of governmental rule. So government ruling man's mediatorial role as being a vice regent on the earth on behalf of God, which we would say is government, is in Genesis chapter 1. 26, 27, it began there. That's the roots of it. That's the DNA. That's where it came from. It continues all throughout history and actually will culminate with earthly government on planet Earth fulfilled in Jesus, the greatest government ruler in the history of the world as he reigns for a thousand years as king of the earth, literally on the earth from the capital of Jerusalem. So that's a condensed version of the sermon I gave on government. Good question. And one more, and then we'll go to lunch. Hey there. Um, I have a quick question on the balance between the inevitability of like the curses of the world um, that God has placed and the command for Christian stewardship and trying to become, uh, I guess, better stewards of this earth. Like how how do we balance that? Um, Can you repeat the first part, the inevitability of what? I didn't hear that. Of the curses of the world, right? The, of the I think curse? you mentioned before, we're like it's impossible for uh, us to expect like human beings to change the environment or change, I guess, how like the harmony or the chaos of the world, yet at the same time, uh, the biblical command to be good stewards, um, I think found in Genesis 1 and 2 when it says to keep the garden, and also Christ, uh, humans should ob- like uh, kind of, ob- what was it, like subdue the earth, um, that sort of thing. How do you balance that uh, command with the, inevit- with the fact that the world probably won't be changed from human efforts? If that makes good sense. question. How do we balance... The curse on the earth with being called to be good stewards of the earth. Is that what you're saying? Well, you have the same dilemma in every institution on planet earth. God cursed marriage, but he wants us to be good stewards of marriage. Wow, he cursed it, yet I've got to overcome that. Wow, how do you do that? Um, So that's true in everything. Um, And the balance is, is difficult. So, And it's a good reminder that God cursed the earth. We aren't supposed to curse the earth. That's not our job. We're supposed to be good stewards of the earth. Take care of it. That's why in Deuteronomy, one of the commands that God gave Moses, this is the environment. He said, when you go to the bathroom, and it's explicit in the Hebrew, number two, you got two million Jews. You go outside the camp, you bring a shovel, you bury it, and you come back in. God's people are not to defile God's community. That's in the book of Deuteronomy. And what God was trying to prevent disease, that's good stewardship. That's really practical. So there's a lot of those kind of things. And, okay, one more, because this person was raising their hand. Go ahead. This is it. Oh, Kevin. Go ahead, Kevin. 
Yeah, sorry. <laughs> Take it away. So I had a question about Genesis 2.9, the significance of the tree of life, and what that would have meant had they eaten that instead of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Is there, yeah, there if they ate from the tree of life, that would have sustained them theoretically with eternal life as long as they kept eating okay. the tree. There's big debate about the implications of that. reason is because we don't know because it didn't happen. Then you're trying to create theology from a theoretical, which is always impossible, but it's fun to think about. But the promise of God is if you're a Christian, you're an overcomer, and in the future, you, Kevin, get to eat from the tree of life. That's awesome. And we're, I'm going to go ahead and let's sing a song, Austin. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Grace Bible Fellowship, please visit our website at gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009.